The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. So, uh, before we jump into Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, just some context. Uh, this beautiful narrative, of um, amazing story. Uh, it is five months before Jesus will go to the cross. We're five months towards the end of his ministry. Uh, Jesus is two miles from Jerusalem. He has not been to Jerusalem for a year and a half. The reason being, if he were to go to Jerusalem, there's people there that want to end his life. So he stayed clear, but it's the Feast of Tabernacles. He skipped it the year before. He decides to attend this year. Uh, he makes it out, uh, and now he's near Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, a little town, and there's a house there that he frequents, and that's where we pick up the story, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village, that's the village of Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Martha has a sister named Mary. Martha also has a brother named Lazarus, maybe a name you've heard before. So there's three siblings that share this home. Lazarus is not present. We can guess why um, in this particular period of Jesus' ministry, he'd done this once before, but Jesus had sent out 72 of his disciples to go preach the good news, to go do ministry in other areas. Lazarus was probably one of those that was out. That's why it's just Mary and Martha that are in the home, but Martha hears that Jesus is near. He hasn't been around for a while. They know him. And he, she says, come on over for dinner. We would love for you to be our guest. Come have dinner in our home. Verse 39, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to everything that he said. So first century dinner would be served at a low table. The people eating the meal would have reclined at the table, meaning they would have kind of laid on their side. Jesus is at the head of the table as the honored guest, and Mary is literally sitting at his feet, just soaking up it all. Every word that Jesus speaks to his disciples, whatever, I don't know if he's teaching, you don't know what he's doing, but Mary is there listening. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted. If you've got a Bible, I would underline and circle that. That's kind of the whole point of what we're doing today or looking at. Martha had a lot of stuff going on. Jesus is at dinner. You don't want to drop the ball on this one. You're pulling out your Pioneer Woman cookbook. You're, getting, you're making sure that everything is perfect for this dinner because Jesus is at dinner. And Martha is distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Could you imagine? You walk out in your cul-de-sac and Jesus is there and you get the courage to say, hey, you want to come to dinner? And he says yes. And you go, oh no. <laughs> uh, all right. We got to get the nice silverware out now. So she's distracted. She came and she asked the Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work, all these preparations by myself? In the Greek, it says she's abandoned me. It's a strong word. She's left me high and dry. We got a lamb cooking. Someone's got to get the glasses filled. There's so much to be done. And she's just sitting in here while I'm slaving away in the kitchen. She's abandoned me. Tell her to help me. You, Jesus, tell her to help me. In the Greek, it's interesting. It's tell her to do her fair share. You see, because you might think that Martha's going, I want to be sitting down. 
You think I want to be slaving over the stove right now? No, I want to be sitting there. Tell her, tag, she's it. Tell her to go finish up the dinner while I get to sit here and listen to you, Jesus. No, that's not at all what Martha's asking for. Tell Mary to get up, get in the kitchen, come help me and tell her to do her part because you are at dinner and this is going to be good. Tell her to get in there now. Tell her to do her fair share. Verse 41, Martha, oh Martha, it's a double name. The double name can be angry double name or can be sweet double name. This one I think is sweet double name. Martha, Martha, oh, you're worried and you're so visibly upset. You're upset about many things, but there's only one thing that is needed right now. And Mary, Mary's chosen what is better. Mary's made the right decision. And I'm not going to take that away from her. Oh, Martha, you're worried and you're upset about so many things. And I get it. You want this dinner to be special and I appreciate it. I know you're doing this to serve me. Thank you. I get it. But between the two of you, you, you think that what you're doing is what's most important. And actually what Mary's doing is most important. I always ask when we read the Bible in a narrative like this, a story, I ask you to put yourself into the story. I ask you to sneak into the end of the table and, and to smell the meal that's cooking and, and to feel the stress of Martha and to, to see probably the sheepishness, the sheepishness of Mary and, and to see the conflict between the two and Jesus breaking the tie and saying Mary's actually doing what I always tell you, put yourself there. But while I want you to do that here today, I, I need you to now step out and to begin to apply this. Is there anyone in this room who just feels worried and who's flustered by life right now. There's just so much going on that God could be sitting in your living room and you're like, I gotta get it done. Because if I don't do it, who will? See, we read this story and immediately we associate with one of the two sisters, right? Immediately. There's some of you just like, Mary is so zen. She just gets it. She, she just saw Jesus and she's sitting there and it's beautiful. And, and I just, I, I hope one day I can be like Mary. And there's others of you who go, Mary is a lazy punk. <laughs> this world was made up of Mary's. We wouldn't get nothing done. You know what? Mary may have chosen what's better, but Martha's the one cooking the meal. That lamb ain't going to cook itself. If, if we're going to have dinner tonight, we all don't get to be Mary. Someone's got to be Martha. It might as well be me because I get stuff done. Unlike her or him, those Marys just get to have all the fun. No responsibility. We, we associate with one or the other. But I don't want us to miss what Jesus is teaching us here. 
in life, there will be chaos. There will be busyness. There will be things that have to get done. If they don't get done, balls get dropped. If balls get dropped, things start to fall apart. We all know the pressures of life. Some of you have far more than others, but we all know that weight. If this doesn't get done, it doesn't get done. And that's not acceptable. But what Jesus is trying to teach us is that there is always a better choice because there is only one thing at the end of the day that you actually need. And that's him. That's his presence. Now, it's difficult for us to grasp, especially for those who align more with the Martha. She was cooking dinner for Jesus. Like, what she was doing was so good. And that's why I think Jesus' rebuke was very gentle. Martha, Martha, what you're doing is great. But what Mary's doing is better. I'm not going to rob that of her. She's living in such a way as to not miss this opportunity. And she's taking full advantage of this opportunity. And I'm not going to rob her of that. And today, what I want to discuss for the minutes that we have left is just how are we living our life? And are we living our life in a rhythm that one is sustainable, but that two allows us to experience the moments in our life that I'm calling God moments? Because I would venture to say that every given day of your life, you will have a moment, a potential opportunity to connect with God. It will be originated and orchestrated by him. And you will have a choice at that point to continue doing what you're doing because it's important, because it has to get done, because the busyness of the day is not going to stop just because God shows up. You can continue to do what you're doing or you can, in that moment, stop and experience him. How do we live our lives in a rhythm that allows for this? I think a lot of times we come to the conclusion that the answer, the solution to us living a life connected to God is a good and healthy quiet time. If that term doesn't resonate with you, it's a time set aside during the day, either for prayer or scripture reading, worship, whatever, but it's a time set aside for God. It's a specific amount of minutes that you say, I'm going to do this on a daily basis so that I connect with God. I want you to hear this, church. A quiet time is a beautiful and a wonderful thing that will always bear fruit. Always. Choosing to intentionally spend time with God is never a bad idea. But here's what I find happens even to some of the best-intentioned folks in this room. I'm going to spend... 10 minutes a day with God in a quiet time, let's say. You, make, you made that resolution 12 days ago. Maybe doing it great, maybe not. You get up or you decide before bed, I'm gonna set aside this time to connect with God. And you do, you open your Bible, you pray, you, you meditate, you what, whatever. Oftentimes, very rarely intentionally, what happens is that quiet times becomes, becomes a legalistic checking of the box. Hey, I woke up, I spent time with the Lord, got my 10 minutes in, check, now I can live the rest of my life. 
Now I can get busy with life and the stuff that has to get done because I did spend my time with God. And for us to think that a 10 minute quiet time will be sufficient to connect us in such a way with the Lord that we do not A, miss the opportunities that he has for us all throughout our day and B, that we will grow in communion with him. For us to think that a 10 minute quiet time will be sufficient for all of that is an unrealistic pipe dream. And I'm not bashing having a quiet time. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. It's a great spiritual discipline, but is not the end all fix all. Living our lives at a pace and with a rhythm that allows us to see the moments that we all will have where God is present and to take advantage of those moments, to capitalize on their moments. That is what Jesus is trying to teach us today. Mary lived in such a way as to capitalize on the God moments in her life. I can prove it. Two months from now, two months from this night, Jesus will be back at this very house. He's been summoned by someone from the home because Lazarus, the brother who wasn't there this night, Lazarus has grown very sick. And when he got very sick, they sent people to go find Jesus. Jesus got the word that Lazarus was very sick. He waited, didn't run, didn't go immediately. On his way into town, Mary comes running out to meet him, falls at his feet and goes, my brother's dead because you didn't come in time. We called you a week ago and you're just showing up now. He's been in a tomb for four days. How, why? Why did you wait so long? But she sat where? At Jesus' feet. And she wept over the loss of her brother. And Jesus wept. If you know how the story ends, he goes and knocks on the door of the tomb. Out comes Bubba. Where was Martha? We don't know for sure, but I got a good guess. She was cooking the funeral meal. The last week of Jesus' life. Four times Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. Four times he said it. All of his disciples have heard this four times and they're still in the last week of his life going, this is going to be good. When he goes to the throne, um, we're going to get to be like rulers of this earth. They're, they're all jockeying for a position. In the midst of all this jockeying, this woman named Mary walks in with a jar of perfume. It was worth a year's wages. Let's put that in perspective. She walks up to Jesus in the midst of all this bickering. She opens up the perfume and she begins to pour it on his feet and his head. The disciples go crazy on her. What are you doing, woman? You're wasting this very expensive perfume. We could have sold that. We could have fed people. You are going crazy. What are you doing? And Jesus says, you stop it. You stop it. What she's doing is beautiful. Because she gets the moment. She's the only one not so consumed with life and self and position and power. She's the only one so consumed that she's sitting here anointing me not to be king, but for my burial. You stop. You stop. What she's doing is beautiful. Mary gets it. 
in the most hectic and chaotic moments in life, she sees the opportunity and she says, I will just fall at your feet. There's no better place to be. Of course, there's stuff that has to be done. Of course, life is a big deal. But Jesus says, there's only one thing that you really need. And Mary knows how to choose it over all the other things. I think Mary understands and capitalizes on these opportunities because she has what I'm just calling good margin. She has space left in her life. She doesn't just fill it all up so much that she's blind to what's going on around her. Andy Stanley says, margin is the amount available beyond what is necessary. I say it's just what's left over. Richard Swinson talking about margin talks about the three areas of one's life where margin is going to be the most healthy, the most necessary. He says, margin is the time in our lives that allows us for spiritual restoring, physical refreshing, and financial freedom. I told you we've covered this passage twice before. The two times we've talked about it, we talked about physical margin, just leaving time in our day for ourselves, like our own healing. We've talked about financial margin. Don't spend everything you have because that's just going to cause stress. Leave a little bit, leave a little bit of margin. Talked about that. But today I want to talk about the third one. I want to talk about spiritual margin. I want to talk about living a life with space, with time to make sure that we see God. And when those opportunities arise, we capitalize on them. Our culture is hurting for margin. I don't think any one of us would disagree with that. We are living at an unbiblical and unsustainable pace. We praise the person who works 80 hours a week as being a hardcore achiever. The mom who is so beyond stressed out about her kids that she can hardly function. We look at her and go, well done, mom. You're completely devoted. Life is hard. It is oftentimes very full. But to live in such a breakneck pace that you have zero margin, zero time left over for God to run at such a ridiculous pace that you run right by God when he's right there in front of you, that is unbiblical and unsustainable. And yet I feel like it's the norm. I feel like it's what's expected. I feel like the people who choose to move slower and with greater purpose desiring to seek God and find him are the ones that we make fun of for being flaky and aloof and not driven. And yet Jesus says, there's one thing you need. And the person who lives like that has chosen what is better. There's three truths about spiritual margin. Three things that I want you to know. Number one, proper spiritual margin in your life will decrease the likelihood that you walk throughout the day without the Lord. How many days could you go without God? I can go a bunch. Want to know why? Because I work at a church. I'm surrounded by Christian people with Bibles in their hands. I have staff meetings and counseling sessions and weddings and funerals and I write sermons and serve people and plan outreach events and 
talk about kingdom stuff all day long. And I can do it all without God. Without providing space to just be with him. Martha was cooking dinner for Jesus. Had this story been written in any other way, we'd be praising her for her culinary skills. But instead she's the one that gets chastised, right? Even serving Jesus is not more important than spending time with him. How many days could you go without him? Proper spiritual margin will decrease the likelihood that you go any days without him because you're living life looking for him. You're living your mornings and your afternoons and your evenings and your nighttimes. You're living expecting God to be there and wanting to encounter him. Number two, proper spiritual margin will greatly impact your ability to know the will of God. The good, pleasing, perfect will of God that comes from a transformed mind and I think a better way of living, a sustainable rhythm that says, God, I want to follow you so I'm not gonna run a mile ahead of you. Number three, proper spiritual margin allows you to function the way you were intended to or the way you were created to. We talk about this all the time. I I think it's very simple. We were created by God. We sinned and fell short. God fixed that through sending his son, Jesus. And now he asks that each day we wake up and approach him in this manner. Lord, I want to know your will. So I need to slow down enough to know that. And then I want to be faithful and obedient to that. I want to actually live it out. People with proper spiritual margin have a great opportunity of living that out because they're not just doing their own thing. How do we do this? How do we implement spiritual margin? Based on how you're wired, it's going to look different for everybody. So I'm going to throw out some very generic how-tos. These are very generic. You can apply them if you want. Uh, But you really need to look at yourself and how you're wired and how much you need to hear this message in order to apply proper spiritual margin to your life. But there's some simple things that we can all do. The first one is taken from the Puritans. Okay, the Puritans, they, they got time with the Lord right. The Puritans would start every day with what they called centering. It was a spiritual practice called centering. Now it's kind of cool, okay? So here's how it works. Your alarm goes off, whatever time you set it for. Now, here's a good indicator of your overall emotional and spiritual health. Your alarm actually wakes you up. You're not up 20 minutes before your alarm already flipping out about all the things you got to do that day. Okay, you've actually rested through the night and your alarm wakes you up when it's time to hit the ground running. Now, what do we do? Okay, what do most people do? The alarm goes off. Now, because the alarm is our phone, we're like, huh, let me go ahead and do what? First thing, let me check that phone. 
for whatever number of things you need to check. Okay, you're still laying in bed. I don't have any emails. Oh, I've got 17 emails. That's the first thing that you think about that day. I got one text message overnight. That was rude. Um, let's see. Um, got ahead. Let's do the news feed. Okay, Iran is still there. Um, you're six minutes into your day and you've done 22 things already or thought 22 things. The Puritans, they didn't have phones. That was the rooster that woke them up. Here's what they would do. Blankets off, spin the feet around, sit on the ground, edge of the bed. They took their hands, they put it in a receiving posture and it took about three seconds. They would say, Lord, this is your day. May I receive you in it. First thought, first action. Centered on him. Expecting him in his presence. That is not difficult. That is not some revolutionary idea that requires huge amounts of self-discipline. It requires, it requires you to leave the phone on the nightstand for two and a half seconds and to center yourself on God. It's the first thing you can do. Second thing, I've already talked about quiet times, but set aside one to three 10-minute periods in the day that you will just simply shut down to pray, read, meditate, or even just go on a walk. One to three 10-minute periods a day. Todd, you said quiet times can be a legalistic thing. Now, this is about just creating margin, okay? I understand all of you are busy. I understand this may be difficult. I'm asking you to set aside 10 minutes, Or you just say that, that, that time is for God. These next few are far less structured, but they're just good ideas. When you sense God is doing something, actually respond. And your response needs to not be, I don't have time for that, God. Because there's one thing you need and you need to choose what is better. And this last one, literally, not figuratively, literally slow down. Slow down. Fast walkers creep me out. What are you in such a hurry for? If you need to run, run. But if walking is appropriate, then walk. Don't walk, run. What are you in such a hurry for? There is something that truly happens when we consciously slow down. Take your norm, cut it by a third, and just slow down. You'll still get there. Whatever you're heading to will still be there. Slow down. As a preacher, Easter's the Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday comes on Easter Sunday for me. We had a meeting this week about Easter. I'm not kidding. Last Easter, I woke up, I centered myself because it was Easter. I told myself, my staff and all the volunteers that made Easter happen, I, everyone I could find, I was like, move slower today. Slow down. 
We have too much to do for us to run around here missing God. Slow down. I put my socks on slower that day. My britches, slower. Brushed my teeth, slower. I drove, slower. Walked down the hallways, they're like, is he sick? (laughs) It's Easter. No, we're slowing down. Because this is too big of a day to miss God. And I would say that while Easter is very special, tomorrow is too big of a day to miss God. Just because you got yourself in one big old hurry. Slow down. Slow down. Proverbs 27, verse 19. As water reflects the face, you outdoors people can appreciate that. The beauty of a pristine lake, no ripples, just a pure reflection. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Do you live in such a way so as for your life to reflect a heart that desires the presence of God. Beautiful indicator of the heart is how we live our lives. If we live our lives at this breakneck pace, running, going, doing so much so that we never stop for God, that is an indication of our heart. Take a look at your life. Does it reflect the desire for the presence of God? And if it doesn't, heed the words of Jesus. There's only one thing you need. There's only one thing you need. So choose what's better. There's moms in the room that go, yeah, I I get what you're saying, but four kids, four kids, It's sunup to sundown, the hours before and after. I don't have a minute for myself. Therefore, I cannot have a minute for God. What am I supposed to do? Choose what is better. Those are my kids you're talking about that God loves and made and blessed you with. And the mother they deserve is the one that pursues him even above her children. Why are you picking on women, Todd? Because for men, it's even worse. Men choose busyness, not because it's how we're wired or because we're great paternal caregivers. We choose busyness because we're apathetic. We're apathetic and that's our excuse as to why we don't pursue God. I just got too much going on. Choose what is better. The band's gonna come back up here and I, I just wanna give you two verses. Two verses uh, that I want you to use tomorrow morning, okay? Two verses that I want you to use tomorrow morning. I'm gonna ask you to take a note in your phone because that'll be the first thing you pick up. I'm gonna ask you to write it down on a card. I'm gonna ask you to look at these two verses and hopefully tomorrow when you wake up, these verses will guide your day, reminding you to live your life with spiritual margin and in a rhythm where you will not miss the God opportunities that I believe he has for you. Psalm 118, verse 24. 
Psalm 118, verse 24. Please write that down. Please read this tomorrow. You maybe have heard it once I start to read it. This is the day. Today is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice. And I'll be glad in it. What a great reminder to start every day. The breath in our lungs is a gift. It's a grace given to us by God. Will you rejoice in this day? Will you rejoice in him? Will you seek him? Or will you wake up knowing it's Monday and just start going? Today is the day God's made. I'll rejoice in it and I'll rejoice in him. Psalm 118, 24. Next one, Psalm 143, 143, verse 8. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let the morning, the first waking moments of my consciousness, bring me word of your unfailing love. That's a weird translation. Let the morning come and let me hear how much you love me. It is the love of God that compels us to action. His love is unfailing. So tomorrow when you wake up and rejoice in the day that you have breath in your lungs, because it's not guaranteed, the next thing I want you to say is, Lord, today, so that I might live for you, just remind me of how much you love me in spite of my brokenness. Just remind me of that. Because I put my trust in you. You are what I need. You are what is better than everything else on my calendar. The 20 to-dos and the three reminders. I trust in you, not in my own abilities. Show me the way that I should go. Show me your will so that I might fulfill it. I might be faithful and obedient to me, to you. For to you, I entrust my life. You're all that I need. Those are two great verses to start tomorrow with. I pray that you do so so as to not miss the God moments that I believe he has prepared for you. We have communion in the back of the room today so that you don't miss the beautiful mercy that has been shown through the giving of Jesus' body and blood. We have that to remind us. There's a a moment and an opportunity there. I pray you take advantage of it. We'll have people up front that would love to pray with you about anything. That's an opportunity, a God moment to come and just say thank you. Whatever he's calling you to do, However your life looks, I pray that we would be a people that when we have the opportunity to choose Jesus, we do because that's the better choice. Father, help us do just that by your grace and mercy. We need you. We love you. May we live with and for you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.